It's so good to sing about Jesus. Now the reason why we're opening up the scriptures is to find him. He's the MVP of the hour. He's the savior of his universal church and the pastor of this local church. And so we're going to him and his word to care for us and to lead us with grace to the throne of God. Would you pray with me? It's good to still ourselves before you, Lord. It's really hard to still our hearts. Our weeks go by so fast. The calendar's busy. The family gets crazy. Friends and job don't help. But thank you that you've called us to one day, a day of rest, Sabbath to worship you and to think about you. And so, Holy Spirit, give us self-discipline and attentive ears and eyes to your text and to your word. For the next half hour or so, to tune in. We thank you for the work that you promise to do when your word is preached. And so by faith we believe in it. Give us receptive hearts to the gospel. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not too long ago, a friend texted me, a friend from out of town, he was back visiting, and he wanted to get together. He said, James, can we get together? I said, absolutely great. Let's do it. And so uh, we went to the 1910 restaurant here in Lilburn, and it was uh, amazing catching up. We haven't seen each other in almost a year, and so we uh, were able to small talk for a little bit, chop it up, and then as time went on in our conversation, it got a little bit deeper. I asked him what God has been up to and doing in his life. He told me about a few things, and then all of a sudden the conversation took a turn towards vulnerability. And uh, somehow or another, my friend mustered up the courage to tell me that something has been on his heart. And I said, okay, you can tell me. And uh, he told me not too long ago, a while back, that he did something that he was ashamed of. And I didn't press in. I wanted him to tell me as little or as much as he wanted but then he opened up and told me what he did. I'm not going to get into it because it's not appropriate, but it wasn't good. And so after I listened to him tell me the story, I said to him, man, that really seems to be bothering you. And he said, yes, it is. And I said, why? And he looked at me and he said, James, because it's wrong. And I said, yes, it is indeed wrong. Have you talked to the Lord about it? And he said, no. And I said, well, why not? And as he sat there across from me at the table, he hung his head in shame and said, because I know that if I did that, he wouldn't forgive me. Granted, this is a man who says that he's a Christian, and I don't say that in a jerkish way or a holier-than-thou way. I say that in a sorrowful and heartbreaking way. This is a man, my friend, who says he believes in Christ and yet still struggles over the idea of self-condemnation, which ultimately keeps him from knowing freely and powerfully the love and mercy of God. And so I asked him what his plan was, and he told me that his plan was to get back on track, start doing better, going to church, reading the Bible more, doing what is right in God's eyes. And I was able to affirm some of that. But with joy, I was also able to remind him of the gospel, which is first and foremost the fact that none of his good works or religious deeds would ever be able or powerful enough 
to free him from his sin and or make him worthy to stand before God. But because of God and his great love, send Christ. And Christ lived a perfect life and died for sin in his place. He could be forgiven. And so um, we talked about that for a little bit. I watched his countenance lift. And then we ended off with the conclusion that there was nothing that my friend could ever do or have done where God wouldn't forgive him if he was really sorry and indeed repented, asked for forgiveness, and put his faith in the sinless Savior. It's a powerful moment. I watched his countenance be filled with the countenance of the gospel. And the reason why I begin this morning with this story is because although my friend's personal sin is probably very different than many of ours, his experience with it or after it is very similar. You see, Christian or non-Christian, we all as people stumble over our personal sin and failures and then after are confronted with the temptation of self-condemnation and or the idea of recovering by doing good things for God, thus meriting his love. Thinking that, it's either we give up because what's the use anyways, or we must work our way out of our sin back to God through good deeds because our sin indeed has distanced us to him. And so what I would like to do uh, for us this morning in light of this is remind us that there is a proper and improper way to think about and also respond to our sin before God. You see, just as important as it is to confess our sin and acknowledge it, so is it for us after coming to terms with it to know where to bring it, a.k.a. how to handle it. In other words, it is not only enough that we acknowledge and or confess our sin, but after this that we would know where to turn, how to lay it down, and then rest. And there is only one Savior who is able to forgive sinners with both justice and mercy, and that is Christ alone. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning. Looking at Mark chapter 14, specifically verses 53 through 72. If you're following along, you'll see the, the sermon title on those screens there. The title of the sermon is, How Should We Handle Our Sin? Three things I'd like to walk us through this morning are this. Number one, gospel guilt. Number two, godless sorrow. And number three, the sinless Savior. I want to show you that there is a difference between gospel guilt and godless sorrow and give you the hope of the gospel through the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the sinless Savior. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front again. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Follow me here and skip down to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. 
But he, Peter, denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God right now. We're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you gospel guilt. Well, uh, if you're following along here, I'm sure you're wondering why I skipped over verses uh, 55 through 65. It's certainly not typical of me. And uh, so without getting into too much detail here, one of the things that you might recall throughout our study of this book of Mark is, that, is this thing that we have been calling a Mark sandwich. A Mark sandwich, uh, if you're new to our sermons, sermon series here, is where Mark, the author, begins to tell a, uh, to tell a story uh, by telling story A, then interrupts the story to tell story B, Then once story B is over, he picks back up again to finish up with story A. Mark is doing this here, and he's done this more than a few times throughout this gospel. And uh, the reason why that Mark usually does this is to compare and contrast themes and or characters to make a specific point. And so this is what he's primarily doing here with Peter and Christ. He begins by uh, telling the Peter story in verses 53 through 54 interrupts it to tell the Jesus story in verses 55 through 65, and then finishes with the Peter account in 66 through 72. That's why we read the text the way that we did. In the third point, we'll finish with a section on Christ, but for now I'd like to begin to focus on Peter. Um, As readers, we have come to the part of the story where the disciples have all ran away from Jesus. If you remember from last week, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, And after Judas betrayed him, he was taken over by the guards with handcuffs. Peter here was in the garden with Christ when he was betrayed. He fled after the betrayal with all of the rest of the disciples. Mark used the word to emphasize this all in verse 50 to make sure that we did not miss this. But as he begins our passage here, Mark is trying to help us see that after the guards took Christ away, that Peter had apparently followed close behind. Not in a bold way to say, hey, I'm with the Savior, you forgot me, I'm committed. But in a more curious way to be an onlooker and find out what was going to happen to Jesus next. So the guards led Christ away into this building to stand before the high priest on trial. And the text says that Peter was there outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. So he's sitting there outside in the courtyard, and he's recognized by this sweet little girl. And uh, she looked at him and basically said, hey, I I recognize you. In other words, I've seen you with Jesus before. And Peter, in, in verse 68, for the first time says, no. Then after some time, Peter apparently got spooked, got up from the campfire, began to leave the scene, Got up from there, walked towards the the gateway, and there was that little sweetie pie again, that little girl in the story, not just talking to him, 
but everyone saying, this guy here, hey, everyone, this guy here is one of them. He's a follower of Jesus. And then Peter again in verse 70 says, no. And then finally, after a little while, one of the people recognized this little girl's observation with certainty that he was indeed a follower of Jesus from Galilee, most likely recognizing his accent. And Mark in verse 71 says this. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is the point within the larger narrative of our study here where Jesus' words concerning Peter are fulfilled. Same chapter, verse 26, Jesus after the supper said to them all, you all will fall away. And do you remember what Peter said in response to Jesus' prophecy? Even, even though they, they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has done it three times before the rooster crowed twice. In Jerusalem, the rooster crows uh, three distinct times. Uh, the first is about a half hour after midnight. The second, about a half hour later. And then the third, an hour after that. Each crow usually lasts about three to five minutes, and then things get silent and quiet again. And so between the first crowing, noted in verse 69, and the second crow in 72, only an hour had passed, and Peter, within this one hour, had been provoked to deny earnestly and definitely three times his relationship, love for, and following of the Savior. And in his denial, we actually see that he experiences shame over the name of Christ. In verse 71, if you look there, he won't even use Jesus' name. And when Peter heard the rooster crow a second time, in that moment of silence, after his third denial, he finally remembered Jesus' words, broke down and wept. Why? Because Peter here never thought that this was going to happen to him. I just want to remind you that Peter here never intended for this to occur. At the Last Supper, when he said he would not deny Christ, he actually really had a sincere heart to obey and love and follow the Lord. He wanted to prove it. It was in his gospel proclamation, Lord, I will follow you to death. But what Peter did not understand is this, that no matter how much emotion or zeal he had, no, no matter how much love for God or ability he thought he had to live out his face, at his core, he was actually fickle and unable to do so. In other words, Peter, at the Last Supper, experienced false self-confidence. Jesus, I will not forsake you. Which helps us understand that Peter did not know himself nor the depth of his sin nature. In layman's terms, Peter did not believe that he was as bad as a person as Christ told him he was. And so the rooster crowed a second time, and it was like for Peter that he was awaking from this evil dream, which began with his failure to stay awake and pray in the garden. But then after he came to his senses, in light of his public failure, he then flees the scene in shame from those who had witnessed it and finds a place to break down and weep. I was reading one man named Andrew Murray this week. And uh, he described Peter's condition and faith incredibly. This is what he said. 
Peter was not in a fit state to follow Christ because he had not been brought to an end of himself. He did not know himself and therefore could not follow Christ. Before Christ could fill Peter with the Holy Spirit and make a new man of him, Peter had to go out and weep bitterly. He had to be humbled over this. This, which was his inability to remain faithful and do what he said he would do before God. No matter how much he believed it or wanted it, this was the fact. You see, Peter thought he can do it. He thought he was spiritually strong enough to follow the Lord. But never mind not being able to die with him, Peter couldn't even stay faithful in the garden and pray. Which reveals to us that all this time as Peter had been following Christ, he was living under this misconception that he had the ability to keep himself in right standing before God based on his own merit and strength. But finally he breaks as he understands that he couldn't through his personal sin and failure. What was God doing in all of this? The answer, he was using Peter's failure to bring him to his knees. Could you imagine what it must have been like for Peter outside the courtyard after denying the Lord? Hearing the rooster crow. Or in the following hours or even the day when he saw the death sentence on his Savior from that place that he had betrayed the Savior to. What type of guilt or shame, or heavy tears rolled down his face. He wept with grief. But uh, in all this, I want to point out to you something special, something here that makes Peter's tears unique, and that is the fact that Peter's sin drove him to repentance and faith. In other words, even after denying Jesus publicly, Peter had a glimmer of hope still. He still believed that it would be possible for him to be loved and forgiven again. In John chapter 20, uh, after Jesus had died and, and rose again and appeared to the disciples, he, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Peter was there in the room. He appeared to all those fickle, fleeing, unfaithful disciples. And the first thing that Jesus says when he enters is the, into the room is, Peace be with you. And then the day after, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the beach out on the water. John had recognized that it was him, and he told Peter, Peter, the Messiah is out on the water. Peter was working. He dropped all of his work, took off his outer garments, got ready to swim, ran down to the beach, and threw himself into the water at the Savior in whom he once denied. The zealous man with fickle faith who denied the Savior. Then after seeing him having risen from the dead and appear, spoke in a word of mercy and grace through himself, knowing that forgiveness and salvation would still be possible in light of his sin. You see, Peter was filled with gospel guilt. Gospel guilt is a pain and sorrow over personal sin that does not just leave you there, but then turns you to face the Savior and throw yourself on him. What I want for us to see here in the story is that God was using Peter's story, including his personal sin and failure, to transform him and take him from believing that he himself can do it to helping him see that he himself could not. So that his faith 
would be built on the sure and firm foundation of Christ alone. And so I'm wondering, as, as, as we go through this text, if you can connect with Peter in any way, as you think about God's holy and righteous requirements of you to live perfect and blameless before him, do you think that you can add up or have you come to terms with the fact that you can't? Just for a second to help you answer this question, I'll ask you another question. Have you, at every moment and every second of your life, loved the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Here's the, the answer. Um, no one has. Scripture says, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our fallen condition as people. And so with this fallen condition, I want to ask you another question. Have you come to an end of yourself? Recognize your inability as much as you want to love God to actually love God. And has this sobering fact led you to tears of repentance and faith in Christ? If God has led you to lament and be broken over your personal sin, I just want to rejoice with you because it is one of the greatest gifts of the gospel to be sorry for what you have done in front of the holy God. Repentance is the key that unlocks true saving faith and true saving faith turns away from self towards the Savior and his mercy and grace alone to save. Have you wept over sin? Does your heart ache over your sin? That is evidence that you are a Christian. It is good news because the Lord is doing a great, humbling gospel work in you. You can sing that song with confidence. Lord, nothing in my hands do I bring, but simply to the cross I, I cling. Jesus is ready to forgive those who repent. Amen. That was point number one, gospel guilt. I'd like to now move to point number two and show you the difference between that and godless sorrow. We're here in this portion of Mark. We uh, not only have this Mark sandwich in front of us, but what we also have before us in the story is the story of Peter contrasted with the story of Judas. Last week in, in, the, in the garden, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The week before that, when it, uh, we saw how it was all uh, set up, Judas conspired with uh, the Jewish officials to sell Christ off for money, and so in the garden, that's where the, the, the plan unfolded. In the garden, Judas approached Christ, mocked him by calling him master and great one, and then kissed him, kissed him lavishly and at length in order for him to be identified and then taken away. But I, I, I just want to remind you, Jesus has, has up until this point done nothing wrong to Judas. Jesus towards Judas has nothing but been, uh, been merciful and patient, long-suffering and enduring with his hypocrisy. Jesus has treated Judas perfectly. But Judas still did this. And then in Matthew chapter 27, after Peter denied Christ, and this trial here in verses 55 through 65 was over, and Jesus was given a death sentence, it says that when, Jesus, when Judas saw this, that the people he sold Christ off to decided to kill him, that he was sorry for what he had done. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. 
And so he, Judas, took the 30 pieces of silver back to the priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, what use is that to us? See it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. The point here that I would like to make in contrast with point number one is that there really is a big difference between gospel guilt and godless sorrow. And what I want for us to recognize here are all the similarities between Judas and Peter. Matthew says that Judas was sorry. He said that Judas confessed his sin, that he was filled with grief over the fact that he had betrayed and sinned against the Lord, that he actually regretted it. All these things are the same between the two men. But here's the one most important differentiating factor between Peter and Judas, and that is that nowhere in the scriptures do we see Judas turn to God after he does this and repent. All he does is feel sorrow and remorse for for his sin and sit there in it, and it eventually leads him to death. Listen, what I want you to know is that godless sorrow, which is guilt, and our shame not taken to Christ in the cross ultimately leads to one of two things. It either leads you to despair or hard-heartedness. Despair is when when you feel um, Satan having a heyday feasting on your sin and failure. And the way that Satan feasts on those things is when he gets you to believe that you're dirty, too dirty to be loved, that you should be filled with shame because you're condemned over your sin, that you're worthless, that you're undeniable, that you're not lovable, that you are corrupt and or defective. And when he gets you to any of these places, you'll see that evidence in your mood, character, or actions. He has indeed accomplished his goal, which is to get you to believe the lie that the cross is not powerful enough for you in your sin. It's not powerful enough to cover you and keep you in right standing and favor before the Lord. This is the spiritual battle that every Christian experiences. One man named R.C. Sproul said this. One of the main ways Satan and his legions paralyze believers is through accusation. The devil's ploy involves catching us in the act of some public sin or indiscretion hoping then to accuse and destroy us. But beyond this, Satan works with our guilty consciences to make us feel despair. Every Christian sins every day. Thus, the problem of sin and guilt erects a conditional or continual roadblock to holiness and spiritual vitality. This is what my friend was experiencing at the dinner table with me at 1910. Not just guilt, but shame and inability thus because of it to approach God. Listen, if Satan cannot get you to take your life, then the second best option which he will lead you to is to a life full of doom and gloom, hopelessness that is filled of guilt, condemnation, and shame. And on the other side of godless sorrow is hard-heartedness. It's where since you believe that your sin is unforgivable, or unsavable, a.k.a. too dirty, that instead of taking it to God, you just move on, ignore it, and think that time it's going to fix it. Or you just seek to remedy it with good works. But, but, but none of these things actually work. 
Um, hey, if you have found yourself this morning on either side of this coin, I just want to remind you through God's word that you're not unlovable. You're not dirty. God desires you. He longs for you. He calls you to himself. He made you perfectly. He sent his Christ, Christ, his son, to prove his love. There is love, mercy, healing, and forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died as your sin sacrifice, your substitute. His death paid the price to God. There's no more debt for you that needs to be paid. You're forgiven and free because Christ died perfectly and completely for you. You see, after we sin, we can either grab a rope or a box of Kleenex. We can grab a rope and live in self-condemnation and guilt and shame. Or we can grab a box of Kleenex and get on our knees, repent, and weep before God and placing our faith on the Savior, knowing that there is forgiveness. Psalm chapter 32 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose in spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you in time where you may be found. You are a hiding place. You preserve from trouble. You surround with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord is on the one who trusts in him. If God is pressing in on you this morning, it's because he loves you and wants to free you through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And that grace and mercy is free. I'd like to finish up now our time with uh, the last point, which is um, the sinless Savior. Jesus is actually how and why all this is possible and true. <clears throat> I could take a breather. Well, as we uh, finish up in the third point here, what I'd like to do is summarize verses 55 through 65 for you and tell you the main point. If you look there in verse 64, you'll see that uh, Jesus was tried, put on trial for uh, blasphemy. In the beginning portion of the text, they took Christ from the garden into the house of the high priest before the religious higher-ups, a.k.a. The, the, the Sanhedrin. And uh, for however long they sought to accuse and condemn Jesus, yet over and over again, Mark, the author in the story, says that every time they tried, they were unable to because all they were doing was lying. No charge could stand before Christ. Everyone there before, uh, bore false testimony against him. None of their lies matched up. And while all this was going on, Jesus was standing there quiet. 
Jesus didn't need to defend himself because his testimony and track record were perfect. But the main sticking point of this text is when Christ finally did speak up in verse 61, after the high priest asked him if he was actually the Son of God, and Jesus said this, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking words from the book of Daniel and also Isaiah, not only to reveal his identity as the Messiah, a.k.a. the Savior of the Jews, but also to identify himself as the one in whom God the Father gave all authority in heaven and on earth to, to judge and have dominion, a.k.a. Jesus is making a God claim, a claim to divinity. The one and only one thing here that Christ said is true, and yet here, over this one truth, Christ is convicted and charged as a blasphemer and driven to death. I mentioned earlier how the Mark sandwich here is for the purpose of comparison and contrast. And what Mark is doing here is juxtaposing the end of this section of Christ's trial with Peter's denial. He wants to show us that Peter did not remain faithful, but Jesus did. And yet it was Christ who died and Peter who lived. In other words, Jesus had a sinless record and was uncondemnable and yet for his truth and sinlessness was condemned and sent to the cross which leads us to the hope of the gospel that we've been learning from the story which is it, it was God the father's will from this garden story to crush Christ his son for Peter and for the disciples and now for us who under the pressures of sin and temptation ultimately betray and run from God so that after we come to terms with the spiritual reality of our fallen nature, we then can see the crucified Savior and turn back to God for mercy knowing that we can be assured perfectly that he would never turn us away. Peter was forgiven. And there is amazing power in this saving grace that is evident in Peter's life further as the New Testament goes on. How and why? Because further down the New Testament story, it is Peter that Christ uses to preach the first gospel sermon to the church. And from his gospel sermon, which is about the work and person of Christ alone for salvation, the New Testament church is set aflame, is given mission, and led forth triumphantly in victory. In other words, through the gospel, we do not only get forgiveness, but we get abounding grace where God makes or longs to make a grace spectacle over us. God's purpose for Peter is that Peter would be driven to the cross and that the, his, his driving force would not be based on his own merit or zeal for God, but on what Jesus had done for him. And so God uses the, the, the highest of sin, the betrayer of Christ himself, then to be a 
a spectacle of grace for the entire New Testament church to see the love and mercy of God in this one man, this apostle, Peter. God wants to make a spectacle of grace over you. You are not only forgiven in Jesus Christ, but God in his good gift wants to take you and your life and and make you um, a spectacle for all else to see his grace and mercy in and through you so the name of Jesus Christ is revered and worshipped alone. God wants to use you. It sounds charismatic. It is not. It's the gospel. In, uh, I'll finish with this. In the book of uh, Zechariah, Zechariah the prophet has this dream of uh, Joshua who was the high priest. And Joshua was standing before God and uh, Joshua's responsibility as the high priest was to minister to God on behalf of the people. And Joshua was standing there before God as he's standing there. Um, the other one that's here in the dream standing next to Joshua was Satan. And as Joshua stood before God, Satan sought to accuse Joshua before God. And his accusation was that Joshua was wearing dirty and filthy garments. The priests of the time were to wear beautiful, glorious garments to minister to God and his people. The filthy garments represented the defilement of Joshua's life and ministry. So Satan, to make him feel shame in which Joshua felt, accused him over being dressed with dirty things, covered with dirty things. But the most glorious part of the story happened, and that was when God said to Satan after his accusation, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord refused to hear Satan's accusation and instead stripped off Joshua's dirty garments and exchange gave him robes of glory. This is the gospel. That as you and I stand before the throne of God with faith in Jesus Christ, the accuser who constantly accuses seeks to make us feel guilt and condemnation and tell us that we're dirty, but we have the Lord himself fight and stand in our behalf and said, the Lord rebuke you. Here's my son. He crucified and was risen for sin. You therefore are now my child. I dress you in robes of righteousness. That's who you are. You are righteous before the king. Perfect before the king, a son before the king, a daughter before the king, not forsaken, loved, not guilty, not condemned, spotless, clean. The Lord delights over you. He dances over you. He rejoices in you because of the perfect one who has saved you. I pray that God through the gospel would make a great spectacle out of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. It's very humbling that you would die and having no way, shape, or form having deserved it, you would want to give us such a great gift, but we receive it because we believe that you are trustworthy, lovable, and good. So help us to boast in the gospel. Make something great of our lives, Lord, for the sake and name of Jesus Christ. We bless you, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.